Please turn to me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 5. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. And this early epistle is written to encourage these believers in their faith and to also help them understand more about the amazing and eternal things of God. Up to this point, Paul commended these believers in numerous ways. He defended himself and his ministry. He expressed his love and his concern for them. He encouraged them. He prayed for them. And he practically showed them how they are to live out their faith and how they are to grow in their sanctification. Paul's now answering some questions that the Thessalonian Christians had for him. First, what about brotherly love? He answered that. Second, what about those who have fallen asleep? He answered that. And now third, what about the day of the Lord? These are very good questions. If you remember, the Thessalonian Christians had been expecting the return of Christ before any of them died. But guess what? Since Paul's departure, one or more of the Thessalonian Christians have indeed died. So the question is, what about them? Paul's response, hey, Don't worry about them. It's all good for them. In fact, it's all good for all of us in Christ. Because look, at any moment, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The dead in Christ will rise. And then the rest of us who are alive will be caught up together, raptured with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We will then receive our perfect resurrection bodies. And best of all, We will always be with the Lord. So, no worries. No worries at all. This event is imminent. It can happen at any time. And we are always called to be ready for it. And the Thessalonian Christians were ready for it. I mean, the early church was certainly eager and excited for it. How much more us today? All right, what happens after that? Chapter 5, verse 1. Let's look. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. We'll stop here for now, and here in today's passage... Paul now switches to another issue, the day of the Lord. Remember, Paul had just talked about the catching up of believers, or as we call it, the rapture of the church. And he ended chapter 4 by saying, comfort one another with these words. Paul now moves on to another issue, the, the day of the Lord. And we know that because of those words, but concerning. See, that's a marker that Paul uses quite often when he changes the subject. So Paul is now indeed moving to another subject. He did that in chapter 4, verse 9, when he changed subjects. He did it again in chapter 4, verse 13, when he changed subjects. And then he's doing it again here as he changes subjects and moves from the rapture to the day of the Lord, which is a different event, as W. Evine notes. The change of subject is marked. For as 4.13-17 through 17 is concerned with salvation and deliverance, 5.1-3 is concerned with judgment. That's right. And now, Paul will turn to talking a bit about this event called the Day of the Lord. He starts out by reminding them that he's already told them about this, verse 1. 
But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Times and seasons, in the Greek, chronos and kairos. Chronos is the word that we get chronology from. It means calendar time or chronology time. Kairos means seasons, epochs, and events. Seasons looks at time not from the viewpoint of the day and the hour, but from the viewpoint of a period of time. So the Thessalonians wanted to know about the events of the end, about the times that marked the end. And the use of the plural, times and seasons, indicates a number of events that make up the end. This tells us that the day of the Lord isn't just one day, no. It's a period of time where the end time judgments will then take place. So, what do we know about the day of the Lord? Simply put, the day of the Lord is a day or a period of time of judgment that's coming. For us, the day of the Lord is referring to the end of the world and of what will take place in the book of Revelation. Again, not just one day, but a period of time where those judgments will take place. It's interesting to note that in much of prophecy, and in the prophecies concerning the day of the Lord, there's both a near and a far application to this. As one noted, certain prophecies apparently contain a fullness of meaning which is not exhausted by the event to which they most obviously and literally refer. A prophecy which had a partial fulfillment at the time not remote from its utterance, may find its chief fulfillment in an event far distant. An example of this is the prophecy about the day of the Lord in the book of Zephaniah. See, there certainly was a a near application to what Zephaniah prophesied as it related to the people of Judah in the near future. That said, the prophecy also, and in greater measure, relates and applies to the end of the world and to the return of Christ, the far future. So, for them, the day was quickly coming when the Babylonians would come to Judah and into the city of Jerusalem and annihilate that city. That said, Zephaniah had a greater application regarding what's going to happen at the end of the world when Christ returns and when God judges and destroys everything. Commentator Martin summarizes the meaning of the day of the Lord. He says this, It's a day of God's vindication when He's victorious over evil once and for all. It's a day when the questions of God will be answered. The havoc evil has created will be undone. Ambiguities will be resolved, evil will be trounced, and evildoers will, in the end, receive their due. The day of the Lord. And that's coming. Turn over with me, if you will, to Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. All the way in the back of your Bible, Second Peter 3, 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth 
in which righteousness dwells. So here we find that a day is coming, a a period of time is coming of terrible wrath and judgment for those who have rejected the Lord. Now the near application to what Peter writes was the coming destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. However, the far and greater application is what's soon to come in the future at the return of Christ in judgment. Reginald Showers says this about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord refers to God's special interventions into the course of world events to judge his enemies, accomplish his purpose for history, and thereby demonstrate who he is, the sovereign God of the universe. From the many Old Testament descriptions about the day of the Lord, we see that this day is coming cruel and with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it, Isaiah 13, 9. It's a day of vengeance so as to avenge himself on his foes, a slaughter for the Lord God of hosts, Jeremiah 46, 10. It's a day of clouds and a time of doom for the nations, Ezekiel 30, verse 3. It is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty, Joel 1.15. It's great and very awesome and who can endure it, Joel 2.11. It'll be darkness and not light, Amos 5.18. And it will be gloom with no brightness in it, Amos 5.20. It'll be a a day when your dealings will return on your own head, Obadiah 1.15. It'll be a day when the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of distress, a day of destruction, a day of desolation, a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of clouds, a day of thick darkness. You get the point? See? More on that in a bit. Okay, so look. Concerning that day, Paul says three things. First, you have no need that I should write to you, he says. What's that mean? The implication here is that the Thessalonians had already received teaching concerning the day of the Lord, which would have been done by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy on their first initial visit to Thessalonica. And while they wanted to know more, Paul says, you already know enough. So it seems that they wanted like a a date. They wanted a time. They wanted a, a, a little window so they could get the inside scoop and be even more ready. But Paul says, you already know what you need to know. And also the second coming of the Lord is not an event that they could mark a a fixed date on their calendar about. One said, spiritual preparedness for the coming Christ does not involve date setting, clock watching, or sign seeking. And that's right. And while Paul gave them more information about the rapture, because they didn't know much about that event, hardly anything, look, they already knew what they needed to know about the day of the Lord. You have no need, Paul says, that I should write to you about this. Second, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 2, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. So again, they already knew this, that the day of the Lord would come like a thief in the night, which implies that Paul had previously taught them about this. The imagery here is very vivid. I mean, when a thief comes in the night, a thief comes by stealth. He sneaks up on you. He tries to trick you. He tries to catch you unaware, unexpectedly, when you aren't expecting it, of course. And that's how the day of the Lord will come. Now remember, the common belief is that by the time of the terrible events of the day of the Lord and of the return of Christ in judgment, the church will have already been snatched up and away or raptured. And so here's a question. How could the world not be expecting the events regarding the day of the Lord? Here's how. Because sin blinds. Liars abound. 
and sinners will lie to themselves and think all is well when all is not well. So there will be a brief calm and they'll think that everything's okay and then it's going to happen just like that. It's going to happen. Now remember, the day of the Lord isn't just one event and certainly the beginning of the day of the Lord and all that it entails will catch the unbelieving world unaware and unprepared, let alone Christ's return in judgment. In Matthew 24, Jesus has been talking about his second coming when he comes in terrifying judgment and look what he says in verse 37. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now what does that mean? Well, it means that they were indifferent. It means that they didn't care. It means that they refused to listen. Remember? Noah had preached to the people for 120 years leading up to the flood as he built that ark, warning them again and again and again and again. It's coming. The flood is coming. And they were indifferent until that flood came and took them all away. And that's how the day of the Lord will come upon the unbelieving world. And again, once the day begins, there are going to be numerous signs going on. Oh yes, numerous signs. We're going to look more at that next week. But all these things are happening, but what are the people doing? Life as usual. Ignoring God. Marrying, eating, drinking, living life. Focus, explaining things away. Focusing only on the here and the now and ignoring the truth of God until, like that, they're swept away. It's incredible. They won't be ready, no. To them, even though the signs will be there, to them, it'll all be very unexpected. And look, even though the rapture of the church has already happened by that point, the call is to live your life in light of both the coming of Christ for his own at the rapture, chapter 4, and of the terrible, terrifying judgment on the unbelieving world that's to come in the future, the day of the Lord. So the unbelieving world isn't going to be ready, but we are to always be ready. And the question is, are you ready for when he comes? In Revelation sixteen fifteen, look what it says. Behold. I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes on, lest he walk around naked and men see his shame. What's the point there? Uh, The point there is to always be ready. See, if a guy takes his clothes off and goes to bed and he gets robbed in the middle of the night and, and the morning rolls around and he's got nothing to wear, that's not good, is it? Nothing good about that. Instead, The call is to to stay spiritually dressed and to stay spiritually awake so that we're always ready to see the Lord. So the day will come like a thief in the night upon the unbelieving world. Unfortunately, some don't understand this truth. In 1833, William Miller published his belief that Christ would return in 1843. When the year passed, the date was reset for April 18th, 1844. And then again, Reset for October 22nd, 1844, with thousands of followers anxiously awaiting the end of the world, many of them having sold all their possessions. After what was called the Great Disappointment, various theories were offered, and one of them spawned the Seventh-day Adventist movement. In 1992, there was a group of Korean Christians who believed so strongly that Christ would return in October of that year that they sold their homes and they sold all their goods. In the despair that overcame them when Christ failed to meet their schedule, some of them even took their own lives. How incredibly sad. See, our call isn't to be like that. No, our call is to be ready today. 
Our call is to always be ready. Look, on that day, there will be sudden destruction, verse 3. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Note the they in that verse. The implication being that we, (coughs) believers, won't be here on that awful day, but they, unbelievers, they will still be here. And look, they'll be saying peace and safety. They'll be preoccupied with the things of this fading life. They won't be ready. They won't be prepared. And that's when it's going to happen. Note that there is a belief that sometime during the great tribulation, and again, we're going to look at that next week, uh, as described in the book of Revelation, there's going to be a short period of peace in the Middle East. Now think about that, but it's going to be short-lived. And just when people think that everything's good, everything's fine, everything's dandy, that's when it gets worse, that's when it gets way worse. But the point is that the world won't be ready in any way for the day of the Lord. Sudden destruction. It's not good. Gordon MacDonald says... There will be an air of confidence and security in the world. Then God's judgment will suddenly begin to descend with vast destructive force. Destruction does not mean loss of being or annihilation. It means loss of well-being or ruin as far as the purpose of one's existence is concerned. It will be as inevitable and unavoidable as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. From this judgment, there will be no escape for unbelievers. So again, sudden destruction. Look, Zephaniah describes the day of the Lord as a sacrifice. That's not good. Remember, sacrificing animals was a big part of worship. Because sacrificing animals to the Lord was a living picture of Christ who would die in the place of believers so they wouldn't have to die for their own sin. See, sacrificing with the right heart meant that you could have communion with God once again. And while we today don't sacrifice animals in order to draw near to God, praise the Lord, because Jesus became our once and for all sacrifice for us in our place as believers, again, praise the Lord, it was a major part of worship back then. But Zephaniah takes this act of worship and makes it the vehicle of the message of wrath. As one said, those who have long despised the sacrifice that God provides become the sacrifice that their sin merits. In other words, God says, I'm going to slay you. You're dead. You're dead. It's coming. Look, the only escape is to flee to Jesus in true, repentant, saving faith. That's it. Peter writes this about the day of the Lord that's coming in 2 Peter. The heavens will pass away with great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat in both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So again, sudden destruction. And look what Peter says. He says that on that day, in that time, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Note that there are three heavens that are spoken of in Scripture. There is the heaven of God. That's called the third heaven where God dwells. Then there's the heaven of the stars and the planets, which is called the second heaven. And then there's the heaven that's above us, uh, the sky and everything that's in it right there. And I believe that it's the first and second heaven that's going to pass away with a great noise. Everything that's above us, everything that's visible to us, everything that we can see. Look, in Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says that heaven and earth will pass away. Revelation 6.14 says that the sky will be split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island will be moved out of its place. 
Verse 13 says that the stars of the sky will fall to the ground like a fig tree, cast its unripe fruit when it's shaken by a great wind. The sun will become black as sackcloth made of hair, and the moon will become like blood. And so we see that in that day, that God is just going to roll up the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, the, the, the sky. He's just going to roll it all up like a scroll. Again, more on that next week. Peter also says that on that day, the day of the Lord, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Literally, the elements being scorched up, they're going to be dissolved. The word element speaks of the elemental substances that constitute matter. Talking about the basic elements that make up the chemical composure of the entire universe. Those things will be destroyed, dissolved, loosened, and broken up. Like a building being torn down. All the elements will just be disintegrated. And even those things that are seemingly indestructible, they too are going to be destroyed. By what? Fervent heat. Terrific burning. That speaks of intense heat, scorching heat, furious heat. Heat beyond anything that we can imagine. And so, when the day of the Lord comes, all that God has created will be destroyed. All of life all the elements, and even the heavens, nothing will be spared except for us in Christ. While God has sent His judgments before, none of those judgments convey the magnitude of the judgment that's to come, the day of the Lord, as detailed in the book of Revelation, before Christ's return in judgment. Peter also tells us that the earth will be burned up in the day of the Lord. Both the earth and the works in it will be burned up, Peter says. Think about that. This is all going to burn. This is all going to burn. Our houses will burn. Our cars will burn. All our earthly possessions are going to burn. It's all going to burn. And truly, nothing matters but Christ and what we do for Christ. Sudden destruction, certain destruction, and it's coming. And look, there'll be no escape for the non-believer when that day comes. And that's the caveat. And just as a pregnant woman can't escape labor pains, there will be no escaping this day, again, for the non-believer. Labor pains describe sorrow, torment, grief, pain, and bodily distress. Anybody understand that? Labor pains? Okay. It pictures the intense anguish that unsaved humanity will experience because of the dramatic calamities that will precede Christ's second coming in judgment. And again, no escape. One commentator notes these four truths. One, the world is pregnant, ripe, for what will happen because of its rejection of the Lord. God's wrath, which has been building up throughout history, will suddenly break forth. The signs of its coming are discernible, even though the moment of its arrival is unpredictable. Two, this stresses the element of surprise. It will come suddenly, like the birth pangs of a woman when the child is ready to be born. Three, The world can no more escape the coming wrath of God when it breaks out in the day of the Lord than a pregnant woman can escape labor pains. A strong expression is used in the Greek to stress that fleeing or seeking escape will be futile. Four, like birth pangs, it'll be short-lived, but it will steadily grow in intensity. And that's right. So here's the picture. The picture from 1 Thessalonians is this. The church gets taken up and out of this world. And then after that comes the day of the Lord as described in the book of Revelation. A seven year period of time with the last half being the worst. 
those that aren't taken, the unsaved, they will have to face this day of the Lord and they will not escape this day. That said, is it possible to be saved in that period of time? Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. And while they will have to face some terrible events as they go through that period of time, hey, if they surrender to Christ in repentant faith, they will indeed be saved from eternal wrath in hell forever, which is far worse than anything that this life can give to us, including the events of the day of the Lord. See, Jesus saves. That's good news. Jesus rescues all who believe on him from eternal wrath. Jesus is the means of escaping the wrath of God against sin, Jesus alone. Jesus is our ark of refuge from the flood of the wrath of God, right? Question is, are you a Christian? That's key. Are you saved? Look. Look what Paul writes in verses 4 through 5. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Oh, what hope we have in the Lord. Look, third, you are not in darkness, not if you have Christ as Lord and Savior. So look, they, unbelievers, they are darkness. But we Christians, we are not in the darkness anymore. Instead, we are children of light, children of God, light in the Lord. In Ephesians 5, 8, Paul writes, you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Now look, 1 John 5, 7 tells us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Talking about the nature of God, the essence of God, that he is light as opposed to darkness. Not physical light, but talking about who God is ethically, who God is morally, he's light. God himself is uncreated light. God dwells in the splendor, glory, and brilliance of light. Wherever he is, the splendor, glory, and brilliance of light shines forth out of his being. In fact, there isn't even a need for the sun when God's glory is present, Revelation 21. Instead, the glory of his presence just beams forth the most brilliant light imaginable. It's called the Shekinah glory of God. So brilliant and glorious that it would consume all of us. God is light. That's who God is in his nature. Theologians believe that this refers to two primary qualities about God. First is truth, and the second is holiness or purity. So you have illumination and purification. You have truth and holiness. And it's these two qualities that jump out when we think of God as light. So when it says that God is light, it means that God is the source and measure of all that's true. Another way to put it, nothing is truly understood until it's understood in the light of God. See, he's the source of all that's true. And whatever is true is true because it conforms to him. He is truth. And apart from him, you get lost because he alone lights our way. The term God is light also reveals God's absolute holiness and purity. In him is no darkness at all. In scripture, darkness stands for sin, evil, death, and wickedness. So light means truth, holiness, true goodness, and purity. See, In God is absolute truth, and in God is absolute moral perfection and holiness. No darkness at all, no evil, no sin in God, no, 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 not ever. He is entirely set apart from the common and from the profane. God alone is unique, distinct, and worthy of all our worship, 
and he's worthy of all our adoration because he alone is without rival. He stands apart. He's perfect. He's separate from all sin. And his character is one of flawless moral perfection. See, God always does what's right. Always, always. God never does wrong. Never, never, never. He is light. He alone. So, what does it then mean when Paul says that you, the believer, the Christian, you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord? Who's the prince of darkness? Satan is the prince of darkness. So clearly, darkness is describing who we were before we were saved and who we belonged to before we were saved. Darkness. It's a life without God, a life without the hope of spiritual cleansing and forgiveness, a life without the hope of heaven, a life of emptiness and futility, a meaningless life, a purposeless, purposeless life, a, a sad life, a wasted life, a life based on a lie, a life that ends with eternity in hell. That's who and where we once were, but not anymore if in fact you've surrendered to Christ in repentant faith. Why? Because Christ changes everything. Right? He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness over to the kingdom of light. He makes us, who were once spiritually dead, spiritually alive. And now, we who believe, we, think of this, we are light in the Lord. We are not darkness anymore. How good is that? That's not who we are, right? How is that possible? Christ possible by grace through faith in Christ alone because of what he did on the cross for everyone who believes, right? That's the only way that this is possible. Jesus is God the Son who left heaven and came here. He took on human flesh, 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in the believer's place. And three days later, he rose up from the dead. And that changes everything. And look, for all who believe in the person and work of Jesus in true repentant faith, look, our sin that condemns us to hell and to eternal wrath, that sin was put on Him, which He took and paid for in full on the cross as the believer's substitute. And then His perfect life was credited to us who believe, which allows rebels like us to be justified, cleansed, forgiven of all our sin, and perfectly fitted with the righteousness of Christ, which allows us access to God and to the eternal glories of heaven forever because of Christ. All because of Christ. And only because of Christ. And now, for everyone who believes, for all who repent and turn away from sin in that old life and and turn to God in true faith, what? Heaven? Salvation? Forgiveness, eternal cleansing, moving from darkness to light, from being a child of Satan to being a child of God, from going to hell to going to heaven forever with God and his people. We are not darkness anymore. Praise the Lord. No, he saved me. One who was once blinded by sin. He came to me in the darkness and and he, he turned the light on. Not only that, but he who is light now resides in me and he enlightens me and he helps me now to see the truth that I was once blinded to before he awakened me and he gave me spiritual life. And now because of him in me, I can understand and comprehend his truth and I can walk the way that he wants me to walk more and more and more. And I want to do that 
when I couldn't care less about that before because he changes everything. And I'm not in darkness anymore. No, I'm light in the Lord because of him in me. He changes everything. Anybody? He changes everything. Therefore, look, the day will not overtake you as a thief. But you. Look at not uh, What's that mean? It means that what, again, what happens on and during the day of the Lord isn't going to happen to us in Christ. It means that we're not going to have to put Uh, not going to have any part in the day of the Lord. We're not going to have any part in the future judgments of God and his wrath because that's reserved, look, for the people of darkness, the night people, the unsaved, not for the people of light, the day people, Christians. Verse 9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, see? So the belief is that the day won't overtake us, lay hold of us, seize us like a thief because We will have already been taken up and out of the world by then, as we saw in chapter 4. So this, the day of the Lord, comes after that. Look at this again, just to drive this home. Look, in verse 3, Paul says that the day of the Lord is going to come with sudden destruction and they shall not escape. Again, note the word they. But then look, here in verse 4, he says, but you, brethren. So in contrast to them, you are not in darkness. You're not going to be in the night when the thief comes. You're not a part of darkness. And so you won't experience the day of the Lord. You won't experience the, the wrath of God. You won't experience this sudden destruction. Why not? Because that's for people of darkness, the night people, not the day people, the people of light, not for us who believe. What incentive, what great incentive to stop putting Christ off for another day? Right? I mean, surrender to him today before it's too late. Because we never know what tomorrow's going to bring. Look how Paul ends in verse 5. You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. See, we are saved. Right? We, are, we know the truth. We're, we're ready. Glorifying God where he has us day by day by day. Looking up. Growing in our sanctification preparing ourselves to see the Lord and to be with Him forever in glory. We are sons of light. We are children of light. We're not night people. We are day people. So how should we be living in light of this great truth? Well, how about this? Live as children of light. Make sense? Live like day people. I mean, why would we ever want to go back to the darkness, the dirtiness, the stain, the stench, the filth of what we once were? No, no, we love him. Anyone? We love him and we want to please him and we pursue sanctification based on our love for him. We're children of God. We're children of light and it should show more and more and more in our lives, of course. So we fight sin fervently every sin and we pursue those things which glorify and honor him passionately and we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him and we are ready we are expectant we are eager we are in earnest until we finally get to see him face to face are you ready paul said in the beginning of chapter four we are to abound more and more that applies here as well That's what ready, eager Christians do. Remember, the word abound means to excel, to be in excess, to 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 exceed, and to do considerably more than what would be expected. 
The picture's of a river that's overflowing out of its banks. And that's how we are to be when it comes to living out our Christian lives. Abounding, overflowing, excelling more and more and more. See, as we've said numerous times already, more is a good word for us. More is a good word for us. The word means very, very much or to a greater degree. And that's the heartfelt appeal from Paul. So good isn't good enough when it comes to our spiritual lives and when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. No, more is better. So Paul clearly wants other believers to superabound in the things of God and in every area of their Christian lives, especially in light of his imminent return for us. Be ready for it. Be abounding in your faith. See, and that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, God indeed is worthy of this, of of more from those of us who love him. And there is no greater thing that we can give our hearts to our lives, to our souls, to eternal things that delight the heart of God and that have eternal value. Hey, you'll never regret abounding in the things of God. You will never regret giving more to your beloved Lord. Never, never, never. Now look, we in Christ, we don't have to fear what lay ahead for us. We don't have to fear on this earth or in the life to come. But if you're not a Christian, be afraid. If you're not a Christian, be very afraid for what lay ahead on this earth and in the life to come. Be afraid. But I got good news. Christ, Christ is our hope today. Surrender to Christ and be saved from the wrath to come. Lord, help us to live in light of these truths. Lord, help us to be ready. More. That's a good word for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to be ready. Help us, Lord, to be eager, to be excited, to be expectant. And I pray, Lord, that you would find a church that is eager, abounding, and ready. And Lord, that uh, we would be a church that is pursuing you and your glory with passion, that is pursuing the sanctified and God-honoring life more and more and more. Encourage us in these things. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.